Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In today's episode, you will become what you think about. We will be speaking with accomplished movie and Broadway producer, radio host, and pioneer of cable TV through satellite technology, Al Paranello. Al, who's an entrepreneur, is also the owner of the historic Surflight Theater in Long Beach Island at the Jersey Shore. He will share stories of his humble early years in Hoboken, New Jersey, and his path to success that was filled with hard work and challenges. Al will also tell us about the friends and mentors who helped him realize and achieve the dreams he had since he was a child. So I'd like to welcome Al to our show. Welcome, Al. Well, how are you, James? It's really great to be here. I'm looking very much forward to having a discussion with you. Same here, Al. I'd like to start by asking you, where were you born and raised? Can you tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. I was born in a uh, a mile square city where two wonderful, amazing things happened that people seem to know about. Uh, The town is Hoboken, New Jersey. The two amazing things that happened there was, and a lot of people listening to this probably know that this is Frank Sinatra's town. Born in Hoboken, raised in Hoboken, and everybody in Hoboken knows that. At least they did know that when I lived there. I'm not sure Frank Sinatra music is as popular as it was once. When I lived there, I was born actually late 40s, 49. I hate that. I wish I was born one year later, so I can say <laughs> the 50s. So I spent the 50s and the 60s and part of the 70s there. Number two, it's where the first game of baseball was played. Yes, I know that. And what year was that, Al? Oh, I don't, I'm not a historian. I don't know the years, but it was 1800s. It was uh, an Elysian field. All I can say is that the historians continue to say that's where the whole game started. So that's kind of cool, considering that I'm a baseball fanatic. You know, so Hoboken was a, uh, a nitty-gritty town. When I was there, it really was not a clean town. It didn't have all of the things it's become. Hoboken today is the place to be. It really is a suburb of New York City. It was just one of the nicest places to grow up and one of the greatest places to play all kinds of stickball and games in the streets. We were lucky. We had a, uh, an empty lot on our block. I was on 8th and Bloomfield Street. That lot was Yankee Stadium to us. We would every day, my friends and I, would actually be in that lot for at least four hours after school. And we would just play stickball, punchball, any kind of ball you can imagine. It was a glass-strewn lot. And I have the stitches in my right knee to prove that point. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I fell in the lot at one point catching a ball and landed on a busted Coke bottle. Ouch. Were you mostly playing stickball or baseball? That particular time we were playing touch football, but mostly we were playing stickball because there were two buildings on each side of the lot. There wasn't an outfield. The outfield was imaginary. If you hit a ball off that wall and it reaches that wall, it's a home run. 
So at this time, you're talking about the late 50s, maybe. Were you interested in professional baseball at that time? I was a Yankee fanatic. Ah, I wonder why. What was going on with the Yankees back in the late 50s? Well, late 50s, they were a powerful team, but early 60s, they were the world's team. My grandmother, of all people, used to take me to Yankee Stadium twice a month during the summer. And we'd take trains. I don't even know where we were going. I didn't pay attention because grandma was taking me there. Next thing I know, there it is. There, the house that Ruth built right in front of me. And we would get over there. I mean, I actually saw people like Enel and Maris and Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford on the mound. It was just an amazing experience to watch these amazing players. To see Mantle hit three home runs in one game. As a kid, you're in love with the Yankees and you're in love with Mickey Mantle. And he hits three homers. He did it for you. He did. He did. <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, he knew I was coming to the game today. Happiness. Happiness. Every day was fun. We prayed that somebody would get a new refrigerator because we'd get to play in the refrigerator box when they threw it out. <laughs> was our fort and we would hide in it and then people started throwing rocks at it (laughs) (laughs) how much fun can you have with a piece of cardboard a lot a lot you can have more fun with a piece of cardboard that is absolutely free than anything that you can buy in a store al i want to ask you about your mom and dad can you tell us about your mom and dad sure if there was ever a marriage that should not have happened It was my mom and dad's. Mm. They simply did not get along. And there are reasons for that. My mom actually was the daughter of uh, alcoholic parents. My dad was a person who had no education, was an automobile mechanic by trade. But at night, he was a boxer or a singer. And that was his life. He knew how to fix cars. But I remember my dad had this ability to take a wrench and listen to a motor and literally say, I know what the problem is, and then would fix the problem. To me, that was kind of cool. So he was really good at what he did. Oh, yeah. No, he was wonderful at it. What about his boxing career? Was he accomplished? Did he earn any money boxing? What weight class was he in? Do you know any of those things? No, I don't, because it really was uh, something I never got involved in. But I know that he'd come home some nights very happy because he'd want to fight. That's all I remember. You know, so he was just that kind of a guy. My mom was a um, an amazing woman. If you could take the word love and personify it into one human being, that was my mom. My mom was the most generous person on the face of the earth. She loved everything and everybody. She was intelligent. She just didn't have much of an education. She worked hard always as a kid. She would tell us stories. I mean, you know, the stories were horrible to hear, but you got to deal with reality. She would tell us stories about Christmas Eve, and they didn't have a tree because they couldn't afford a tree. Mm -hmm. So Christmas Eve, whatever's left over on the stands, abandoned. And then she and her brother would have a drill, and they'd bring home remnants of trees and sort of drill holes and stick branches in them to have a tree. They were very resourceful. Yeah. yeah. My mother ultimately, after the divorce, became a very self-learned woman and became a stock market chartist. What did she do to learn that art? She looked in the newspaper to see who was hiring. 
And she got a job at some office in Journal Square. And then they saw talent. Next thing I know, she's training and being a chartist. And she had this natural gift and was able to do stock market charts. And they paid her very well. So life was good. My mom, if I had a, a friend over the house, the friend had clothes that were dirty or uh, had holes or rips in them. She would go out and buy my friend's clothes. Oh, God bless her. God just bless a lovely, her. lovely human being. Al, did your mom work in Hoboken or did she work in New York City? She actually worked in, in New Jersey in uh, Journal Square, one of the big towns in Hudson County surrounding Jersey City and Bayonne and places like that. She had four kids. I have three brothers. She literally took us under her wing and was able to provide for us and give us what we needed and food on the table every night. Did your dad come by? Did you see him much or did he have much to do with you at that point or not? My dad was actually remarried. He married a school teacher. Ironically, so did I. <laughs> but um, they had a pretty rough relationship also. One last question about your dad at this point. Did he ever continue with his music career? Right till the end, every time I saw him, he would sing. And his favorite song was Old Man River. Really? Awesome. And he had that sort of baritone voice to pull it off. His wife, Ruth, when they were preparing to get married, Ruth had an interesting idea. She didn't want to do uh, a typical wedding, but it's, it's just sort of interesting how things like this come together. She decided that there was this little show in New York City back then that opened in 1960, and it was called The Fantastics, and it was down in the Sullivan Street Playhouse in Greenwich Village. She decided that what she's going to do is take the wedding party out for a dinner after watching the show. So she literally bought the majority of the seats in the theater. It was a very small theater. It only had 115 seats. And this is your father's second wife? That's correct. So obviously, we were there that night. I have to tell you, it was one of the moments that absolutely changed my life. I've always been a media guy. When I was a little boy, I was the guy who was writing letters to, really writing letters to ABC television, CBS, and NBC. And I would write them and tell them all the mistakes they were making. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest day in my year was the day that TV Guide was published for the new shows, premieres of the new season. I would rip that stuff up. I would take pages out. I would make notes about, and then I'd make predictions. And I'd say, this is a stupid show. <laughs> and then I'd write a letter to CBS and I'd say, what, what's wrong with you people? You know, can't you see that this is a failure before it even starts? And 99% of the time I was right. I was a TV baby. TV was the most important thing in my life. I'll get back to the Fantastics in a minute. But I got to tell you about the only thing that amused me when I was a kid was television. I really was not a great student. I went to school and I was bored out of my mind. I didn't understand all these things that were trying to cram into my head. At night, I found a show on television that also changed my life. And that show was Steve Allen's show. 
We had a black and white Admiral TV. I believe it was 17 inches. I would turn on the Steve Allen show at 11 o'clock at night, and I'd watch this man do crazy things. I'd just be laughing my head off. He was funny. He was a musician. He was amazing. And I would say to myself, I got to know this guy. I just want to know this guy. I have a sense of humor that I believe emanated from that experience. When I say these things changed my life, I'm not kidding. But as a TV kid, as a kid who was looking at the TV screen when I'm home all the time, when I wasn't playing baseball or punch ball or something like that, this was just an amazing miracle in my life. That's something so entertaining. And all of my friends, no one even knew who Steve Allen was. I was the only guy interested, apparently. One thing I wanted to comment about TVs, I don't know if you remember, you probably do, the dread when all of a sudden the tubes would start to go on the TV <laughs> set and the picture would start going like all wonky. And then it had to get picked up by the TV repairman and taken away. And there would be this empty spot in the living room. It was awful. It was a terrible thing in those days. I absolutely agree with you. And it was the antenna. Everything was over the air. Nothing was by cable. A little later in my life, I started reading about this thing that was coming up called cable TV. I started studying it as best I could. And I realized that, wow, this is going to change the world. Those problems you were seeing with the TV, horizontal and vertical and you know, skewing left and right. I had a good feeling about ultimately what would become my career, cable TV. I want to go back to the Fantastics for a second. What I saw that night in that performance was something I will absolutely never forget. I watched a show that for a young man who has no girlfriend and really nothing more going on in my life except television, I saw television on stage. And I realized for the first time, the importance of testosterone. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> I realized I was getting feelings as I'm watching. By the way, it's a love story. If anyone listening to this has never seen The Fantastics, do so, because it is just one of the greatest shows ever put together. And it was assembled by a couple of guys, Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt who were trying to put this off-Broadway show together for six years. Six years, they tormented themselves and were just doing everything in their power to assemble a large show. They wanted to be Broadway producers. And after six years, they finally got their act together. They were trying to produce a show that was Western, that had stagecoaches on stage, and that had Indians and cowboys and horses and, you know, all of that stuff. And they were writing beautiful music, but they just couldn't get their act together. And finally, out of desperation, they decided to just fold the tent and start all over again. But what they took from it was one song that they had created. And that song is called Try to Remember. Try to Remember has become the song from the Fantastics. It's a beautiful song. Uh, try to remember the kind of September when life was that song. Blown. Yeah, yeah. It's about two fathers. One had a daughter and one had a son and they lived next door to each other and they wanted to get them together. And the way they did that was basically by keeping them away from each other. 
Oh, reverse psychology. Yeah, exactly. But the songs and the absolute beautiful words, the lyrics to these songs and the lyrics to the play itself just got me. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, all of these things that they're saying, I'm experiencing in my life. Things like, without the hurt, the heart is hollow. And I realize that you need a little pain on occasion to say, hey, that hurts. Let me get away from here. Let me do something else. Who understands why spring is born out of winter's laboring pain or why we, are, we all must die a bit before we can grow again? Every time I heard something like that, my head was exploding. How beautiful is this? That meld with the beautiful music. I was absolutely astonished at how beautiful this play was. How old were you at this time, Al? I guess I was maybe 17, 18, something like that. I was at that age where I was starting to realize that even though throughout high school, I was really pretty much nobody. I, I, I hated school. I wasn't participating in any sports. and any, I just wanted to go to the lot and play softball with my good buddy, Sal. We would hang out together, and that was my life. And suddenly, boom, this explosion takes place. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, can people write like this? Can I write like this? How did they figure out how to produce this thing? Can I produce like this? Once again, television. All I did was watch television. So I, I sort of started getting into some habits that I didn't realize were sort of pretending that I was having a career in television. One of the things that I started doing, so the Merv Griffin show was shot in New York. So I would take the 63 New York bus and I'd go to New York alone. And I'd sit in the audience and I'd watch them produce shows. But I wasn't necessarily watching the show. I was watching the various monitors in the studio and thinking, Oh, I get it. The director wants that shot. Now I understand it. And now he's got a wide shot so we can see everybody's reaction to that. And now he's got an audience shot to see the audience's reaction. So you were seeing these things not as a lay person. You were actually thinking, how does this all come together? You're not just there to watch the show like, say, I would. You were trying to see how it was being done, all these different behind the scenes things that were going on. So it really was unlocking something in you, almost like a gift that you already had in you. Basically, that's it. But I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> you know, at the time, I have this concept in life that basically says, bounce off walls. Listen to yourself. Watch what you do. And then put it together and see that I never sat down and said, this is my plan. Let me do this. Let me then execute the plan. I created the plan by living it. It's, it's something that has worked for me. I see so many people. Today, I'm on the foundation board of my college, the college I graduated from. And I talk to a lot of parents and they're like, I want my son to do this. I want my daughter to do this. And you know, you gotta, you gotta think these things through and you gotta put them on paper. You gotta, I'm like, no, you really don't. <laughs> you, know? you just go out and do what it is you want to do. That's the plan. Is it that you 
go for the experiences. And if you fail, you fail fast and try something different. If you succeed, you start to develop it. Is that the theory? Pretty much. You learn by doing. You actually do the thing you want to do. When I was sitting in that audience dozens of times at the Merrick Griffin show, I realized how to produce a television show. I got it. I watched it. I didn't have to go to a classroom. I didn't have to take notes. And it really started me in my career. Although I was a young kid and I knew nothing. It was in my soul. One of the first dates I had with my wife was the Ed Sullivan show. Ed Sullivan show with Topo Gijo? You got it. Oh, my favorite. <laughs> I remember that as a kid. It, it's kind of funny because it was literally, I think it was like a third date or something. And I got tickets. I'm like, oh, because that was a tough show to get tickets for. And the funny thing is, I don't even remember who was on the show that night. You know what I remember? I remember Ed, during a commercial, was screaming at some kids. He called them youngsters. I'll never forget it. And he's like, you youngsters, sit down, sit down. <laughs> that's, that's my memory of that night. <laughs> I don't have any idea who was on. It didn't matter to me. But once again, I studied it. And the Ed Sullivan Theater now is owned by CBS, and it's where David Letterman was there for years. That was his theater. And now there's others. I even got into Johnny Carson's show when he was in New York. And I met somebody along the way, but I was aggressive about this stuff. And the next thing I know, I get a phone call. Uh, if you want to come to the Carson show, here's what you got to do, The Tonight Show. And I had to go. I had to meet the guy. And he took me into the control room. I sat in the control room watching Johnny Carson. And that night, Ed McMahon actually did a potato chip commercial. When he came into the control room, when it was over, he handed me the bag. And I still have the bag. Get out of town. Really? Yeah, <laughs> Were the chips in them still or what? No, no, I ate the chips. I'm not as dumb as I look. <laughs> so th this is how it started for me. This is how my media career started. It started at the Fantastics. And the Fantastics comes in, back into my life as we weave through this. Interesting stuff. Good. So now you are graduating from high school at this point. You've got this love that has been unlocked for television, for broadcasting, all the nuts and bolts that go behind putting on a show. It's all kind of seems to be in your heart. This is the type of thing you're interested in. What happened after you graduated from high school? Well, I didn't feel prepared for college. So I worked for three years before I went to college. But when I say I worked for three years, I had a lot of fun. I had a friend back in Hoboken, great guy, was still in touch. His name is uh, Dennis McMullen. Dennis and I decided we both wanted to be producers. <laughs> we're sitting around one day and we said, you know, coffee houses were the big thing back then. Coffee houses were in Greenwich Village, they were in New York City, they were everywhere. And colleges had coffee houses. But I wasn't in college, Dennis was. We started thinking about maybe we can do a coffee house. We knew nothing about business. We knew nothing about financing. We knew nothing about anything except production because we were self-taught. So we went to a local church that happened to have had an empty storefront on the biggest street in Hoboken on Washington Street. We just went in and talked to the pastor. 
And we said, we're two guys from town and we play musical instruments and we think we can put a coffee house together. And we're looking at that empty storefront and wondering if you have any use for it or would you be interested in having us do this with you or for you? And he was like, amazing. He said, you know what? What do you have in mind? I said, well, we have a whole bunch of great musicians. We hang with them all the time. We have parties and we love each other and we're really good at what we do and we can put on shows. We'll do it like every Friday, Saturday night. Then we'll serve coffee to anybody who wants a cup of coffee and maybe we'll have some cakes and things like that, but that's it. That's all we'll do. This is a hangout, a good place to get kids off the street and we'll all have fun. You know, we like this idea. Let's do it. Let's do it. It was just that simple. Now, you didn't tell me that you had some musical talent. What instruments did you play? I was the least talented of all my friends. If you uh, bear with me, I can demonstrate. Would you like that? I would love it. Thank you. Oh, if you're the least talented, then they must have been amazing. <laughs> I had this wonderful friend by the name of Charlie Matola. Charlie was literally the most beautiful human being. He was talented. He virtually played every instrument. He had a great voice, but he had that one thing that most musicians don't have. He had the ability to write music. He wrote songs. They were amazingly beautiful. Oh, and he also had a wonderful sense of humor. When I think of Charlie today, Charlie, unfortunately, is no longer with us. But when I think of him today, I see him sitting down in a comfortable chair with a dog either on his lap or at his feet, just playing beautiful music and singing. And then making you laugh because he was hysterical. He was the funniest guy. He was a later day Burl Ives. Ah, Burl Ives. I remember Burl Ives from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> That's all anybody remembers him for, right? You're absolutely right. But the most loving human being I've ever met. Now, he was one of the people who worked with you on this coffee house. He would perform there. He was a star. When Charlie was playing, every seat was filled. He was just magnetic. We became best of friends. You were doing this coffee house. So you're in your late teens and you weren't making any money in that coffee house, were you? Or was this no. just a volunteer type of a position? Yes, no money. We sold coffee and gave all the money to the church. Yeah, at least they were willing to let you use their property to do this. But uh, yeah. at least I guess you could do is give the coffee proceeds to them. Sure. But it gave you an opportunity to do what you loved. It was not only did we find incredible talent, people were knocking on our door to play there. The newspapers were doing articles about us. Dennis and I, who were the producers, we actually started taking this talent that we had and putting what we called hootenannies together. And, and we were putting hootenannies in any organization or church who invited us. It wasn't a business. It was pure love. It was what we did. And what did you do to put food on your table or in your stomach? We were still living at home. I got myself a job at 
Stevens Institute of Technology. It really was the first job I ever had in life. I mean, I had a small salary. When I say small salary, I'm not kidding. It was $1.25 an hour. And I will tell you that it is where I got the most significant education I have ever had in my life because I suddenly took myself out of fantasy land and hootenannies and coffee houses and TV shows, and I suddenly had responsibility. The Stevens Institute was in a place called Castle Point. It was the only place in Hoboken that had trees and grass that you can lay in, and the smell of grass was everywhere because they were cutting it every day somewhere. It was like going into the country. And on top of all of that, it had a view of New York City. Beautiful view. It was great. We didn't talk about Frank Sinatra at all, but that's what he used to do. He used to take a walk up to uh, places in Hoboken where you can see across the river. He was a singer, as you know. He wanted to get to that city. And in a sense, that was pretty much my own desire. Either that or replace Mickey Mantle. You know, it was okay with me. <laughs> But I'm getting back to Stevens Institute right now because I was in the mailroom. That was my job. It's where I learned all the rudimentary foundational stuff about business. I had none of this knowledge. I learned to respect people. I learned to call men sir and women ma'am and to show up on time. And the reason I learned to show up on time is because once I was late. What happened then? Well, you know, you had to clock in. You had to put your card in a big clock. Yeah. And then it goes up to the office. And if they see that I showed up late, I was called to come in and speak to the uh, department in charge. And I went in and they said, this is intolerable. You were three minutes late and we're docking you one quarter of an hour, which I think turned out to be about 30 cents. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, now, 30 cents might not mean much to people listening today, but back then, it was a Spalding. It was a ball. It was a rubber ball. That was my life, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, without Spalding balls, you can't hit home runs. You would lose them to sewers. <laughs> and then we would dangle people. We would hold people by the ankles as they uh, lower themselves into the sewer after getting the big cover off the, the sewer plate off the, off the foundation. And then they retrieve all the balls, you know, but it was very dangerous. But we did that. I remember one day, it was a gift from heaven. It really was. I was just taking a walk. I don't know what I was doing, where I was going. But suddenly I saw that someone had left two, two, not one, two, glass gallon milk containers. Now that might not mean much to people, but I knew that those containers each had a deposit on them and they were worth 25 cents each. And it was like a lightning bolt. This is amazing. And I bring the glass things up to the supermarket and they handed me two quarters. Oh, wow, excellent. That was was two folding balls. This was like winning the lottery. It just didn't happen. But there it was. That, now that, isn't that something? I'm sitting here, 71 years old, and I remember that prize like it was yesterday. It was an opportunity and you seized it. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Or that, or you could have been held up by your heels again down in the sewer to see if you can find any down there. <laughs> Here you are, you've, you're saying that after high school for about three years, you were working in the mailroom at Stevens. Mm -hmm. You were producing these coffee house shows. What happened next? Well, what happened next in terms of importance in my life was one day a lovely woman walked into the coffee house. And I remember now I have to give you a backstory. I've been dating a girl for a couple of years. I really envisioned that that girl, I'm going to call her Linda because she might be hearing this. So Linda and I were together for a couple of years. And one day out of nowhere, she said to me, you know, I think we should probably split up. Where did this come from? Not even a hint. And I remember feeling that everything was taken from me, that every plan that I was beginning to put together in my mind was, was gone. But this is one of the great principles that I've learned in life. Because when Anita walked in the door that day, I looked at her and I said, my God, she's really cute. And I want to go over and meet her. And I did so. And I made some terrible jokes and she laughed, which was even better. I said, look, you know, um, if you like this sort of thing, I have my friends playing in Morristown next week. Would you like to go? Of course I would. Of course I would. I'm like, oh my God, this is great. So as we started getting together, this principle formed in my mind. And the principle is that no matter how bad the negative you're experiencing, every negative is accompanied by the seed of an equivalent benefit. Mm. And the job is to find the seed and nurture it. And what grows is a benefit that is so much larger than the original problem. If Linda did not dismiss me, I never would have met Anita. And Anita is your wife of how many years, Al? Do I have to tell you this? Please, please do. Please <laughs> We're do. going on 48. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Isn't that great? And our love just keeps growing and we just respect each other and love each other. And we have a beautiful daughter, Dana, and two beautiful granddaughters. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a love fest. It really is. And I just couldn't be happier. But there it is. Every negative is accompanied by the seed of an equivalent benefit. That is a great experience and a lesson that you learned, I guess, in the, at that time and also subsequent things that happened in your life. So let's talk about how and why did you leave Hoboken to go to school in another state? What happened was I was floundering. I was doing well. I had this crazy job that were paying me a dollar and a quarter an hour. I had these other jobs I was doing that was paying me nothing. And the one thing that was developing was my mind. It took me three years to realize this. By the way, I was promoted to the chemistry department. And I was the general manager of the stock room for all the chemicals and was killed myself in that thing. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> but the bottom line is that I wasn't interested in it. I just was not interested in it. I would have conversations with all the students about television. That's all I was doing. I was talking about television and the growth of television and able revolution and the coming satellite revolution and all these things. My mom encouraged me to go to college. 
my friends were in college and I was floundering, but I wasn't worried about it. I was very comfortable. I was very happy just trying to make these little things happen. I decided that I'd be looking around at colleges and my mother started doing some research. She really wanted me to be a success. I'm just so thankful for her being there. And she was encouraging me virtually every day. You know, we got to get some catalogs. We got to start looking around. And, and I know I didn't have any money and she didn't have enough money to send me to college. And so we didn't really worry about that. It was just like, let's get the ball rolling and we'll figure it out. She told people of my interest in broadcasting and wanting to be a TV producer. Suddenly she heard about this school in Boston. And the school in Boston was the school to go to. It was a junior college, and it was a school that specialized in broadcasting. It was the only school in the nation that actually had color television in the studios to teach kids, and they had stereo radio system. It was all on campus. Everybody would be hearing all the shows, so you can specialize in radio. You can specialize in front of the camera acting, or you can specialize behind the camera producing, So, or you can specialize in radio. So ironically, it sounded like a home run to me. Now, here was the problem. I just met Anita. Anita is in New Jersey. And if I do this, I'm going to Boston. That was a conundrum, a conundrum that really was very painful because I didn't really want to stop this relationship. We were really digging each other to use the language back then. <laughs> so at any rate, my mom and I decided to fly up. Now, neither of us has ever flown in an airplane at that time. You're terrified so, or excited? Well, we're a little of each, ah, <laughs> to be honest with yeah. you. Very excited. Yeah, we were the annoying people on the plane who were taking pictures out the window. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. It was, it was the Eastern Airlines shuttle. It lands right in Logan Airport, but it was one of the most thrilling days of my life. My first airplane ride... If I remember correctly, I believe the fare was $11.25. Oh, my goodness. But, and people smoked on the plane back yeah. then. Yeah, that was uncomfortable. But my mother was a smoker, which unfortunately is the reason she died as a young woman. Mm. She smoked uh, four packs of cigarettes a day for 40 years. Oh, my goodness. That's a yeah. lot. Of my mother died at 64 years old. Way too young. Terrible. Too young. Uh, I have already lived seven years longer than, than her. The world really lost one of the great people. But that's another story. So we interviewed, and I was accepted. I remember that it was months away from when I had to get up there. So I guess I had three or four months. And just to give you an idea of my biggest problem, which was leaving Anita, I remember thinking to myself, it's not fair for me to be tied with her at this point because I'm taking care of myself, but you know, she's going to be left without a boyfriend. Not that that was going to be a problem for her, but I felt bad for her. Sure. So I decided I should probably not attempt to keep this going. So I just didn't call her for a while. And I know she was sensing that. Ultimately, one day, a little thing arrived in the mail. It must have been weeks that were, that were gone that I hadn't called her. And it was one of these things that she picked up at a store, which was in a roll, and it was all rolled up. It was this thing talking about 
the attributes of a Taurus, right? Remember, everything was astrology back then, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, and I'm a Taurus. And she underlined all of the things that she loved about me. <laughs> and I, I got this thing, and I'm like, well, I am such a fool. I can't leave this girl. I can't do this. I love her. I, you know, so I immediately called her and we worked it out, you know. She came up every once in a while to Boston. I came home. We, we worked it out. Then I went away. One of the things that I did not have when I went to Boston, I was a very shy guy. It doesn't sound like it, but I was very, very shy. I had a hard time meeting people. I, I was the guy who didn't raise you know, his hand in school. I was shy. I think it all came from the fact that when I was in high school, I had acne. That acne told me that who would want a face like this? Who would want, you know, I had an inferiority complex like you would not believe. And I remember it. It was very painful. My guy friends would accept me, but I didn't have a girlfriend, you know? <laughs> All those years of high school, I was just rather lonely. That's why I played stickball. <laughs> but at any rate, when I got up to Boston, I realized something else, that I don't have a choice. I just have to make this work. I would take long walks alone. I'm like, I don't really know anyone here, but I just broke through. I didn't have a choice. And I, there it is again. There's a success attribute that everyone should understand as far as I'm concerned. When you put yourself in a position, you are forced to do the right thing. Now, if I wanted to be a lonely guy and sit in my dorm room for a couple of years, I would have failed there. And I just started opening my mouth and I started talking to people. Is it fair to say you were reinventing yourself? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, when I came home, people didn't know who I was. <laughs> <laughs> who is this guy? He's talking. <laughs> he's talking. He's got things to say. He's telling jokes. He's slapping me on the back. Now, my understanding is that you ran for an office at school and you ran with some promises of doing something at that school. Can you tell us about that? Well, that's one of the ways I found that I could force myself into situations. I found out that you can actually run for freshman delegate when you enter the college. And of course, nobody did that because what's that? What's a delegate? I don't even know what, what it means. <laughs> I know I'm a freshman, but what's a delegate? So I went in and I talked to one of the people in the office and they said, we don't get a lot of people running for these things, but if you're interested, we'll definitely support you and give you what you need to run. So I said, I'm running. And they said, great. So now you need a campaign instinctively, I just said, how about a coffee house on campus? Done. It's the only thing I know how to do. Right? <laughs> coffee houses are very popular. I know I could do it, but I needed the support of the school. I started having discussions with the admissions people who got me to deans to talk to. And I said, you know what? There's a room downstairs in one of our buildings, Kenmore Square is where we were. But downstairs in one of these old buildings, they had a room that was not being used for years. It just sat there. You had to walk down two flights of stairs to get to it. So they said, well, let's do. I said, you're kidding me. This is great. So they gave me a budget and I bought all the things I knew we needed. And I had a little, little stage that was already set up. And I thought that's where the musicians will play. 
I also knew a little about lighting because I put together a light box for the Hoboken Coffee House, and I was the lighting director as well as everything else. So I knew how to do that, and the school was uh, supporting it. It became a gigantic hit on campus. It just became the place to hang out. It was just uh, a lot of fun, and something interesting happened. Yes. Did you win the office? Oh, I I forgot to tell you that. Yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) So you've been doing this coffee house now, and you're taking courses. I'm assuming you're enjoying the courses you were taking. You were learning some things. Who did you get to perform in your coffee house? I started taking ads in local newspapers that this new coffee house is opening and you've come in and audition. We're looking for musicians primarily, but we'll listen to anybody and anyone. But one day, a guy walks in. He was a student at the school. I hadn't met him before. He comes in. He says, apparently, you're the person I need to talk to if I want to perform here. And I said, yeah, that's correct. What's your name? And he said, Andy. Andy what? He said, Andy Kaufman. The Andy Kaufman. Correct. Andy was a guy like me. He's just there for the experience. But he wanted to be in front of the camera. He wanted to be an actor. He wanted to be a song and dance man. That's what he called himself. Everybody calls him a comedian, but he really was never a comedian, although he was a comedian and uh, did some very strange things. For our younger listeners who may not know who Andy Kaufman was, can you give us a brief snippet about who is this Andy Kaufman who you met? Andy was, uh, I'm going to use the word comedian, who broke all of the rules of comedy. So what Andy did was the unusual. He basically did things that were never done before on stage. He liked to annoy the audience. (laughs) And he didn't care how much he annoyed the audience. For instance, Andy would go on stage very slowly, bring all of his equipment on stage, and then take out a mirror and shave. (laughs) That's unusual. Yes, yes. And people be waiting to see where the comedy is. The comedy happens automatically because people are like, what's going on here? That's all all he's going to do is shape. And he totally ignores the audience. He actually doesn't act. Back then, he was never hired to do comedy. He was doing birthday parties for children. I said, you know, Andy, you really don't appear to be very funny. And I was trying to be honest with him. And he said to me, I am funny in the most unfunny way you can imagine. So I said, all right, I'll tell you what, let me take all your information down and I'll call you if something is available here. It turns out I actually was in trouble one weekend because somebody I had hired called and said they can't make it. And I had one person on my call list and that was Andy Kaufman. He's still waiting. (laughs) So, So I called him and I said, Andy, you're on this Friday night. He's like, I am? Yeah, yeah. So come and do your best thing. And I'm thinking to myself, I hope this guy doesn't let me down. And I got to tell you, he did a routine. It's all the stuff he ultimately became known for. Andy was in the TV series Taxi. I remember that well. He played Latka Graves. And Latka was the garage idiot 
who basically made everything work in the series. Back then, he called that character Foreign Man. And Foreign Man was hysterical. He would say, I want to do an impression for you. I want to do Johnny Carson. And then he'd say, okay, ready? Okay. I am Johnny Carson. <laughs> that was it. That's all you do, huh? <laughs> so dumb, so horrible that it was hysterical. It was like, it's ingenious. Is it true that you were the first one to give Andy Kaufman a paying performance? Yes. I am the first human being to ever hire Andy to do comedy. And it was that night. I paid him $5. We had a full house. As he was doing this magical show, I was on the floor laughing. I was so excited about watching this amazing talent come out of this guy who was so unusual that I could not believe what I was seeing. And then he ends the show by after going through all the stuff that ultimately made him famous later on. He did Mighty Mouse, which was hysterical. I mean, people, were, they couldn't believe the ingenuity of this man. He did bongo drums. He does his whole routine with different voices. And you think you're hearing a story and you're not. It's just <laughs> different voices. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And it was funny because it was ridiculous. Totally ridiculous. And then he ends all of his performances, usually with his dead on impression of Elvis Presley. Elvis actually is on record as saying it's the best I've ever seen. That was Andy. Andy did sadly pass away at a young age. Yeah. And he passed away at 35 years old. Oh. Saddest funeral I've ever gone to. Andy and I became buddies. Going back to that performance, by the way, to show how unusual Andy was. Before he uh, had the performance, I got a phone call from his father. Andy gave him my number. He said, I just want to thank you for hiring my son. Um, he comes from a beautiful family. I know them all very well. And that's why I got the thank you from the father. And then the mother called about a few days after the performance. She said, I just want to thank you so much for paying my son. And it was just an amazing thing. It's not like that any longer. I've hired a lot of comedians since then. Well, <laughs> Nobody bet. thanks me. And I pay him a heck of a lot more than $5. <laughs> I'm just thinking about $5 could buy a lot of Spalding uh, baseball. Oh, man. <laughs> so, Al, I know you came back to Hoboken after you were done with school up in Massachusetts. Why did you come back? Did you come back to continue your education or did you come back to work, to be with Anita again? Tell us. Yeah, well, what happened is after I, um, by the way, I should tell you one other thing about being at Graham Junior College. We got to choose whatever we want to produce for television. And I produced a rendition of The Fantastics. So at any rate, after Graham, I had my two-year degree and a lot of knowledge and a personality. <laughs> and a girl to come back to. And a girl to come back to. I came back and she was in school and she was getting her teaching degree. So I decided I now have to um, go on and, and get a BA degree so I can become somewhat interested in getting a job. People may want to actually hire me. I applied to Jersey City State College and they just started a media program okay. and it was called media ecology. So I signed up and I had two years to go. You know, please understand, I was just a student. I knew nothing about anything. 
and a great desire to get into one of the television networks and to, to do something. And one day I was walking on campus and there was this little house and I was walking by and I see this shingle hanging and it said jobs and careers. And I'm thinking to myself, I want to marry this girl. I want to get into television. I need all the help I can get. So I walked in. The lady at the desk basically said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I saw the shingle hanging outside. What does that mean, jobs and careers? Do you actually help students get jobs and careers? And from another room, I hear a guy yell out, send him in. <laughs> That's all he said. The guy was the uh, guy who ran the careers department. Uh, basically, they were not accustomed to a lot of students coming in looking for jobs. Who needs a was, job? <laughs> <laughs> I'm in college. Who needs a job, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's funny because that's the only thing I was interested in. I had no interest in taking dry courses. I just wanted to qualify so that I could get out there. Do what you love. Do what you felt that you were called to do. Absolutely. So who is this guy you met? This was a gentleman called Frank Capone. And he turned out to be one of the most important people in my life. How so? Frank was a congenial guy, liked to laugh, didn't take things apparently too seriously, but he had a hardcore side to him. He said, what do you want to do with your life? I said, that's very simple. I can answer it in one sentence. I want to work for one of the three major television networks. There weren't any cable networks. That was it. It was three major networks and a couple of independent stations, right? So I said, that's what I want to do. And he said to me the following words, if you work with me, if you allow me to work with you, I guarantee you that you will get a job at one of the three major television networks. Whoa. You're like, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> Do you hear me? I mean, it, yeah. was, it was the most incredible thing anyone has ever said to me before. And I said, Frank, how could you make me that promise? He said, well, I'll do it if you work with me. If you actually work with me, I want to teach you what you need to know in order for you to be hired. I don't want you just to go in on interviews. I want you to be hired. And I was just amazed by this guy, but I don't know that I believed him. It was like, who is this guy? Is he just lying to me? How could he make this statement? When he said, you have to work with me, is that how you got introduced to his hardcore side, like his expectations? Oh, yeah. From you? <laughs> so it turns out that Frank had a good track record, and he was very, very good at what he did, but he didn't have enough students that he could believe in. And his attitude was, you know, you just want to just jerk around, you know, don't look to me, I'm not going to help you. But if you show up on time, and if you respect my time. Yeah, you'd already been docked that uh, 25 cents, you had, you had already learned your lesson. <laughs> so he was assured, I am very, very serious. I have two years here. I want to know all about all the stuff I don't know. And he said, good, we'll start with your resume. I said, okay, how do we do that? Meet me here tomorrow. When's your schedule? When do you have a couple hours? Boom. And I said, okay. Next day I went in and he said, okay, what have you done so far? And I had accomplished a few things that I, I didn't know they were valuable. I, at one point I, I took a job 
and I produced a black and white documentary called A Classical Hoboken. It was the most simple thing, but it came to me, and I said, I want to do this. It was the um, Bach Concertos, and I was taking a music course, and I was in love with Bach. I loved the sound of what Bach had produced, and I said, I'll use this music, and it was the Brandenburg Concertos. I took cameras out, and I shot things that were totally about the city of Hoboken. I shot the hot dog guys on every corner. I shot the thousands of pigeons eating in the park. I shot tomato gardens in everybody's home that I knew who had a tomato garden. Things like that. Were you doing this while you were still, you're in school now in New Jersey City as part of your scholastic work, but now you're under the guidance of Frank Capone as well? Pretty much. But I didn't do it. I had already accomplished that when I saw Frank. I put myself through college by working five part-time jobs and took a full curriculum. I'm not saying that for any other reason except to say I had to. That's the only way I could afford to be there. So I had weekend jobs. I had summer jobs. I had uh, counseling jobs. I had tutoring jobs. And then I found this job that was producing, and I was the luckiest guy in the world. So now I'm excited to hear, did Frank Capone fulfill his promise to you to get you a job at one of the major networks? Well, Frank Capone became one of the biggest pains in my rear end because every, <laughs> because every time I turned around, I would finish a class and the professor at the end of the class would say, uh, Al Paradella, can I see you uh, before you leave? I go into Sam, yeah, what, what can I do for you? He said, well, Frank Capone uh, left me a message to tell you that he needs to see you immediately after this class. He's checked your schedule. He knows you have two hours. <laughs> so Frank and I were working together every couple of days. I would see him and he'd teach me a little more. So if you didn't have a wall to bounce <clears throat> off, then he was it. Yeah. He, he was giving you that experience and that drive. And yeah. he was testing your metal, really. It really was. Now it's one and a half years later. I've gone through Frank Capone for one and a half years of counseling. I've met with him. I've had dinner with him. I've uh, become friends with him and I've learned a tremendous amount of stuff. And I actually have a resume. He assembled all of the things I did. One of the other things I did, a friend of mine, this guy by the name of Jay Campbell. Jay is my blood brother. Jay and I had a little business together. We produced uh, shows. We, we produced some of the earliest cable television shows. We did tons of things together and we've become very good personal friends met at that college. That's why this college is so important to me. So Jay Campbell and I, actually, when I was at Graham, I met a guy who started out to be one of the really great producers in television. Uh, his name is Bert DeBrow. Bert produces talk shows, television talk shows. But what Bert did at that stage of his life is he was touring around with Buffalo Bob Smith from the Howdy Doody Show. The Buffalo Bob? Yes. <laughs> I put a deal together with Bert to bring Buffalo Bob Smith and his show to New Jersey City University, Jersey City State College back then. Buffalo Bob and Jay and I produced that show on campus. And it was the first real show I ever produced. 
where people paid money for tickets. And it was a hit. Buffalo Bob was going all over the country because college kids watched him every week. So I brought him to Jersey City. And he did a fabulous, fabulous, uh, you know, he's a concert pianist. He did piano, he told stories, he had sound effects, he had films of the show. It was fabulous. But how do I get an audience filled for that show? Part of the career as a producer is to understand marketing. So what I did is I put a film together with all this stuff that Buffalo Bob sent me. And I went to the AV department, the audio video department of the school, and I borrowed every day. I made it a job, an unpaid job. And I wheeled this television set and the entire console into the lunchroom of the college. And I played that tape every day for at least a month, telling people. I had signs, buy tickets here. I sold the place out. Oh, yeah. The marketing side is huge. That's huge, right? It's everything. I always consider myself a marketing person first. If you can't sell your show, your concept, no one's coming to the show. Jay Campbell and I produced that. Very, very proud of that. So what happened, it's a year and a half now that I've done all of these things, put together a resume. Frank Capone's coaching me constantly. He was my mentor. He cared about me. And that came through. He wasn't just doing this in his spare time. I don't ever remember him saying, Al, I'm busy. I can't talk to you. He was investing in you. Yeah, it was, it was just a great thing. Now, Anita and I had become engaged. All I needed was a job. And Frank calls me one day. Al, it's Frank. Are you sitting down? I said, yes, I happen to be sitting down, Frank. What's going on? He said, I just got off the phone with a gentleman who is the chairman of the board of ABC Television. His name is Elton Rule. And you have an interview next week. Oh, were you glad you were sitting down? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? He said, no. He said, I called him. He's got you lined up for a job interview. And I said, well, doing what? Doing what? I don't know. <laughs> I said, does it matter? <laughs> I said, no. It's getting the foot in the door. Sure. So I went in for the interview. Not only did I get the job, but... I won it over like hundreds of people. I got with the job, the first job from a school that was on a work study program. So the school was going to give me my final 15 credits that I needed. And I, I'd be working at ABC with a salary. Oh, it's a double win. Yeah. Wow. Terrific. So you're getting college credits. You had your foot in the door and you're doing what you were hoping to do. You know, I was a very, very lucky man because I ask people all the time if they have a mentor. And I usually get, what's a mentor? Turns out that this particular mentor meant absolutely everything to me. It was the beginning of my career. I spent a couple of years at ABC Television learning the business side. My job was to clear stations so that if a special program was coming up outside of the regular programming, and they would preempt that and put a special program in. They had to be cleared. Every station had to accept it or deny it. So I was on the phone with stations all day long, learning the clearance process and learning the affiliation agreements that stations have with the network. So it was a fascinating place to be. And it really 
it taught me about networking. Not only was it a cool thing, but my first phone call was to Anita to say, uh, we can get married. Yeah, you have money coming in. <laughs> you got your foot in the door. That's great. Now, you moved on from ABC. The next place you work brought on a new adventure, both to you, but to TV in general. Can you tell us something about that, Al? You know, as I said, at the beginning of my adolescence, I was writing letters to the major networks <laughs> and telling them that their programming is horrible and that they got to do something about it. And then I advanced at one point to knowing a bit about the technology. While all this stuff was happening, in my spare time, I was reading about the advances of television. I would write to the government and I'd get letters, often they'd send me brochures and things about this new technology that was in the distance, but definitely going to happen called satellite communications. One of the things I, I guess I neglected to tell you is that when one of the uh, jobs that I had, remember I mentioned, I put myself through college with these five jobs. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, one of them was I was actually selling cable television subscriptions door to door for a cable company in Northern New Jersey. And I was setting sales records. 1972, because of my excitement about cable television and my excitement about all of these new programs that are going to be coming in from different ways, I was able to sell it. Back then, I was selling the Madison Square Garden package, Nixon Rangers games of the horse show, the dog show. Yeah. I make it sound like a Hollywood production. You know, I do the analysis. If you went there, you couldn't get in, but now you, you've got it coming into your living room. This is before any of this stuff happened. I was getting paychecks on a weekly basis of over $1,000. Wow, a back then. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a nice payday now. Yeah. So I was getting awards. I, they were giving me awards that I was selling so well. Uh, I remember the manager of the system came over to me one day and said, what is it you're doing? How is it that you're... I said, I'm just... Honestly, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm, I'm just telling them how exciting this is. You know, before cable, there was three channels. Yeah. So I made it sound exciting. But one of the other things I was doing, I was learning about the coming satellites that were going to be opening up an array of channels. So I had cable TV experience, I had satellite knowledge, and I had network television experience. RCA was about ready to launch the first satellite into geosynchronous orbit above the equator, 22,300 miles from Earth. And they were looking for a representative to change the emerging cable television systems to satellite communications, from terrestrial communications to satellite communications. What's a terrestrial communication? Well, before satellites, in order to get a television signal from, let's say, New York to Pittsburgh, you had to buy a line or a microwave feed oh. from one city to the other one. They were very expensive because you would pay per mile per hour for that feed. Oh. When you go satellite, you literally beam a signal, an ellipsoidal signal that covers the entire country. You buy transponder time, and then the entire country gets to see it. All they have to do is put up 
an earth station. Now they're dishes. Ah, gotcha. Uh, yeah, so it was changing the entire technology of how television was distributed. So RCA was looking for somebody and you ended up getting the job. Yeah. Because you had credentials and experience. So I wrote a letter when I heard that they were looking. I got an appointment. This turned out to be, at the time, the most incredible opportunity any guy in my position could ask for. This was now a way to change an industry, to become an important player, and to ultimately make a lot of money. What's wrong with this? All I had to do was not blow the interview. So I went in for the interview in my best suit, which wasn't anything to talk of. I met with a guy by the name of Lou Donato. Lou Donato was one of the uh, pros at RCA. Lou Donato has been in every division of RCA. He's top level vice president of major divisions. And now he was put in charge of the new satellite that is yet to have been launched. He needs a team. And I thought to myself, this is just an amazing opportunity. I can't even believe that I'm having this interview. So I'm having the interview and we're getting along just fine. I really liked the guy. He was a real gentleman. Sure. And we're talking about, I, I gave him all of my information about what I've done. And he wanted to know more about cable. And I had all that knowledge. Halfway through the interview, everything seemed to be going really, really well. And suddenly Lou lights up a cigarette. <sighs> One of the things I have not disclosed to you is that I had asthma as a child. So uh -oh. I was beginning to get affected by it, but I'm putting on a show now. I'm trying not to look affected. I see this interview going down because I'm, I'm suddenly feeling weak and I'm feeling like, you know, I can't do this. I can't take the smoke. And I said, okay, I got to say something. I said, excuse me, Mr. Donato, if we are going to go forward with this interview, I really would appreciate if you could put out your cigarette. Oh, and you're thinking, what's he going to say? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking I was going to get thrown out of the, the office. Oh, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. In the back of my head, I'm thinking, I just blew this. Yeah, you're done. I'm done. It was a small office. It's not like we had this. And the ventilation wasn't good. It was just all coming at me. And I just felt it. I went home, dejected. I was totally dejected. I'm like, that was my opportunity. Why did I open my big mouth? Why didn't I just deal with it? A couple of days later... I get a phone call. Al, it's Lou Donato. You got the job. So Al, did he admire the fact that you said something to him? He didn't say anything about it. And I didn't say anything about it. Months went on and I started finding clients. I knew the cable uh, operations and I knew Showtime. And I happened to have met the guys in charge of Showtime. So I gave them a call. Let's talk. And we started having discussions. So after a while, Ted Turner and I sat down and he had a, the first superstation. He had a superstation before he had CNN. It was channel 17 that he owned in Atlanta. And he wanted to turn it into a national TV station. But in order to do that, he had to create what is commonly known as a common carrier. So a whole separate system had to be set up. And I helped him with that. And we ultimately got him on the air and the superstation was launched. HBO was in the wings. All this stuff was just, and, and boom, 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 boom. 
I was invited to conventions to speak about satellites, to speak about the advent of, you know, what's coming next. And it was literally the job of my career. I will tell you a story that will blow your mind about a call I received one day from a guy by the name of Bill Rasmussen. Bill Rasmussen gave me a call and said, I hear you're the guy to talk to if I want to get into satellite uh, distribution. I said, sure, what's your program? And he said, well, it doesn't exist yet, but we're playing around with putting a, a sports network together, a New England sports network. Just for New England. Just for New England. And I said, okay, that's fine. He said, I'm in a rush here. I'm trying to get all this together. It was hard finding you. So I said, fine. I said, what's good for you? He said, I don't remember what it was. We'll, we'll call it next Wednesday. I looked at my calendar and it turns out I wasn't coming into work that day because I had been working overtime and stuff. And I said, Anita, I'm going to be home with you. He said, oh, it's like really important. I heard the aggressiveness in his voice. And I said, all right, look, hold on a second. I went into Anita. I said, would you like, would you join me next week? I have to go up to uh, Bristol, Connecticut. Uh, and meet with a guy about a satellite. So we worked that out. And I went up to see Bill. I made the presentation. I said, tell me more about your network. So he said, well, he said, we're in the beginning stages. But it turned out it was a well-appointed office. I was dealing with deals that were, we're talking about 50 million and up to grab a satellite transponder, multiple year transponder. And I didn't know who these guys were, but everything was appointed well. And when I had these meetings, my job was to take it back and to either give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So it was a great meeting. At one point, and he was there with his son, Scott. And I said, uh, can I ask you guys a question? Why do you want to keep this as a New England network only? I said, you realize if we get you on the satellite, you're going to be throwing a beam covering the entire country. Why are you limiting yourself? you know, to New England. And the reason was he was a New England guy and he was an administrator for the uh, New England Whalers, the uh, hockey team. So that was his thing. And he knew the New England people. I got it, but I didn't get it. You're wasting nine tenths of what you're paying for. Right. Of what you can do with it. Yeah. Right. So I said, have you considered maybe taking this thing nationally? Because I'm meeting with only national people and this seems a little odd. We went back and forth and his son started uh, hitting his computer and, and trying to find out answers. And there was one tariff, he had to go to FCC to get tariffs approved. And it was one tariff on the books that no one was buying, but it was a less expensive tariff to start out with. And the reason was that it was a preemptible transponder. So that if somebody else has had a problem with a transponder, we would throw them off the air and, and put, you know, but it was less expensive. We would do that but as long as it's an agreement that you're going off the air if we need your transponder. And there were only 12 transponders in the satellite that handled video. And I had already had about eight of them sold. So we were getting really near the end. It was getting to the point where they had to put up some serious money soon. There was a finite number of transponders to a satellite. Only 12 video transponders at that time. Today, you can get hundreds of video signals on a transponder. They had to make a decision pretty quickly. Yeah, he agreed. Now, he had some things set up to get money. Getty Oil were the people who ultimately said, yes, I will back this thing. I became very friendly with him. And watching him go through the process, putting all this stuff together was almost crazy. But he did. And he qualified. And I sent him a telegraph 
not a fax, a <laughs> telegraph, where they stuck these little strips of paper on other paper and spelled out the thing, right? I read about it in a history book once, I think. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. The telegraph has been printed in three published books about the beginning of ESPN because it was the telegraph that gave them this very valuable transponder. I learned after the fact, and this is the story that I think is so sensational, that when I went up there to visit the Rasmussen's, they didn't have two nickels to rub together. Bill was just fired from his job at the New England Whalers. Scott didn't have a job. And they were traveling home to Bristol, Connecticut from their seashore house in New Jersey. And they're trying to put on some sports on the radio. They couldn't, there were, there were no sports. One of them said to the other, wouldn't it be great if there was a radio thing that's on 24 seven with sports, wouldn't that be great? And then the other one said, hey, what about doing that on television? How about 24 hours a day on television? That's how the idea was born. They had no money, but they were committed to try to get this thing rolling. They did everything in their power to make it work. So ESPN was born because Bill Rasmussen went to a bank with his credit card and asked the person behind the counter, how much cash can I get from this credit card? The answer was, we can advance you $8,000. And that $8,000 borrowed on his credit card is what basically made ESPN work. And ESPN today, as of a couple of years ago, I don't know what it is today, but it's worth over $50 billion. Wow. And you saw it form. Yeah. Amazing story, Al. That really is. But you see, what's the lesson that was learned here? Yeah. Never give up. These two guys had to struggle and no one would commit until they had the transponder and they can't, couldn't get the transponder until they had a partner with money and they couldn't get the sports until they had a partner with money and a transponder. So they needed all of these things and actually pulled it off. And eventually it did. And now we have ESPN. That's an unbelievable story. I think I'm breaking news here today. I have never seen that story printed about the $8,000. And I've read everything I'm sure about ESPN. It's part of my life. Thank you for sharing that with our listeners, Al. I wanted to talk about what happened next after you left RCA. You got into radio. Can you tell us something about that? Sure. I mentioned Jay Campbell before, my buddy. Yes. It's the beginning of cable television. We put together our own company and we were actually producing shows, financial shows for a couple of networks, also talk shows, nothing elaborate for television. We were also putting together infomercials. We actually had an office on 53rd Street in New York City. We opened this thing up. We kept it for a while. I began teaching as an adjunct professor at New Jersey City University, Jersey City State College, but I was in the industry. And because of that, I wasn't teaching from textbooks. I was teaching from what happened today. Can I ask you, Al, were you doing this while you were working with RCA? Was it after or before? When were you doing that? Nights. Night, night courses. Yeah. So uh, whatever, wherever I was, I was doing that. Gotcha. Something happened in the course that I will 
never forget. I had a very hot course. Every seat was taken because the word was out that this guy knows what he's talking about and he's out producing programs. He was the satellite guy and boom, 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 boom. When I was teaching at the college one night, I had the kids all riled up. They were very excited. Everyone's asking questions. And you know, a speaker knows when he's got the crowd. Just feel it. There's no other way to explain it. Yes. I had them. And then I looked in the back of the room for some reason. I caught one of the students literally sleeping, back of the room, kind of hiding. And I lost it. I didn't scream and yell, but I lost it. I, was, I had everyone charged up. And when I saw that, that was my only focus. I don't get any better than I am right now. And you're sleeping. I, don't, I reject this. I don't understand it. But it happens, you know. And that just got me. I said, you know what, guys? Let's pick it up in a few days. I don't really want to do this anymore. I just left. On the way home, thinking, well, I can't allow that to happen. I work too hard to have anybody in my class who's going to fall asleep. I was so into this material. There was a guy in my life who I started subscribing to his audio tape service many, many years ago. And that guy was named Earl Nightingale. His key to his writings and to his books was that anybody can do anything if you gear your mind up and you follow the rules of success. And he came up with a rule that was originally attributed to Napoleon Hill before him. But boy, he polished it up, told the story in a way that you couldn't stop listening to him. He called it the seven most important words in any language. If you could just master these seven words and make these seven words the most important seven words in your life, you will find the secret to anything you want in life. I have always applied those words. The problem with it, when I tell you the seven words, you're not going to think much of them because they're so simple that you disregard them and you think, how powerful can that be? When you begin thinking about them, you'll understand how powerful, in fact, they are. And here's the seven words. You will become what you think about. You will become what you think about. If you look around you right now in your room, as you're listening to this, whatever you see, somebody has created that thing, whatever it is. Could be the television in front of you, could be the rug, could be the lamp, could be the paper clip on your desk, it doesn't matter. It was invented twice, once in somebody's mind and then in reality. So I carried that with me. And all of these things I've talked about so far, that has been the reason why I did what I did or accomplished what I've accomplished. It's not magic. You train your mind to think about your next step. You train your mind to see it. You experience it in the mind first, and then it has to happen. And it, I got to say that 
in my own life and my experience with, with other people sometimes is when you're thinking about negative things or thinking about <laughs> something being somebody else's fault other than your own or things like that, you can become cynical, you can become pessimistic, you can become ineffective, you can lose relationships. But when you're thinking about things that are productive and whether you're mentoring somebody, you're influencing somebody, you're creating a business or a product or a really good relationship, it's because you're thinking about it. That's right. Here it is. Yeah. It's powerful. It's so true. I thank Earl Nightingale for that incredible lesson. Now let me take you back to me walking to the car. Yes. After. <laughs> so I'm walking to the car and I'm thinking, what form can I take this information? I'm talking about the success information, the stuff that I always put into my, into my classes. All the stuff about the media is, is the work, but how do I also get them excited? I got in my car, I'm beginning to drive home. I'm suddenly, it's sort of like my mind left my body and I'm driving, I know I'm driving, I'm seeing the road, but I'm also thinking, and I suddenly something appeared that was just a flesh. And it was to take this concept of success to radio and to put together a radio show on the topic of success. Then what flashed in my mind, I'm saying, well, where? And I'm thinking, you can't start in New York because that's New York. That's where people wind up after 20 years of working in Oshkosh. You know, you, you, everybody wants to get to New York. I've always been a talk radio show listener. And there were only two talk radio stations in New York at the time. And one of them, I thought I'd have the best shot at least having a conversation, was WMCA. Now, WMCA was a celebrated radio station. It's where the great masters of radio were. When I got home, I said, okay, I'm taking this idea to WMCA. When I walked into the house, I said to Anita, I have to go into my office and take some notes. I emerged like the next morning. <laughs> I filled a yellow pad, every page with every thought I had on the topic. Next day, I go into the office with Jay and I lay the yellow pad down. I said, I uh, told him, the experience and let's turn this into a radio show. And by the way, who do I cast to do the show? So immediately we said, we'll do the show. Sure, <laughs> why not? <laughs> exactly. We're the guys, you know, and it just became another project in our company. But the bottom line is that I then started putting meetings together. The first meeting was WMCA. It was owned by a family at that time. And the son I uh, answered the phone and said, yeah, come in and talk. You guys have an experience? You ever do radio? Ever do radio? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's not a good sign, but have you worked at other radio? No, we haven't. So I found out something very interesting in that meeting, that there's just always another way. When you hit a dead end, the point is they're not interested in paying anybody to come on the air to see if a show works. They want a show that works, right? But they'll try you out if you purchase the time. And we said, okay, we can do that. 
said, well, we need to do an audition. We need to hear you. We need to hear you on tape. We need to do all, all this. And I said, well, what if I bring you advertisers immediately? Now, I didn't have any advertisers, but I had a list of who I thought might have an interest in advertising in such a show if it existed. I personally went down New York University because they were one of the top ones on my list. Why? Because I've heard them advertise on other radio shows. Mm -hmm. And B, they have something called the School of Continuing Education, which is a night program for anybody to take courses uncredited just for information. So I went in, I sat down with a woman who basically said, well, you have to have a show. You don't have a show. So I said, knowing full well that if I get this account, I'll have a show, right? I walked out of that office with a multiple thousand dollar agreement that if such a show existed, they would advertise. I now had literally a check in my hand that I could bring to WMCA and say, when do we start? And that's where it began. And that's where it began. And that was the toughest part. The easiest part was putting the show together, producing it. One of the things about Jay and I is Jay and I were the perfect team. He is the nitty gritty stuff. And I am the big picture guy. You complimented <laughs> each other then. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was beautiful. So what was the name of your radio show? It was called Your Own Success. And how long was that show on the air? Well, that show was on the air for years. And then we went to national syndication. So we were on over 150 stations throughout the country. So we're on the air for six months or so. Mm -hmm. We were just going in, doing the show, having fun. You know, I created a couple of ideas that we, uh, I, I started reading ads in the uh, Sunday Times about businesses for sale. And I would call unique businesses that people were trying to sell. And I'd say, I'd like to interview you. And then our uh, listeners might have some questions for you. But I was finding all the interesting ads. Uh, I give tours of uh, where stars used to live in New York. And I give limousine tours. That was interesting to me because it's got a little showbiz, you know, connection to it. That went a long, long way. People actually listened to that segment of the show alone. We had no idea how the ratings were going. Kept coming back and the phones were ringing. One of the things that happened is the manager of WMCA, he basically said to me one day, guys, I want to take you two out to lunch. And I'm like, it's all over. We had no contract. So what happened is we sit down at lunch and he didn't seem very happy. And I'm thinking, we're going to get fired. The show's over. I thought we were doing a good job, but I guess not. So he said, I want to show you something. I have to give you this piece of paper. Oh, God, this is going to be it. And I opened a piece of paper. All I see is numbers. I have no idea what I'm reading. And his name was Frank. I said, Frank, I don't know what this is. I'm sorry. What is this? And he said, that's your ratings, Hal. You are the highest rated show on WMCA on weekends. And beginning right now, you don't pay us, we pay you. Really? That amazing? What a nice surprise, huh? One thing that happened on the show as we were making things happen, it was just, it was, it was a home run. I had connections with every publisher in New York, everybody writing a book about success or something about success. We had astronauts on the show, actors on the show, famous people. Well, even novelists want to come on the show. But finally, one day, I got a call from a publicist. 
She said, Al, I have a guest I'd like to pitch. So I said, great. She said, he's a motivational speaker. He's uh, written many books. He's got a new book coming out. He would love to pitch it on your show. I said, great. What's his name? I know a lot of these people. His name is Earl Nightingale. Oh, gee. <laughs> your man. Wow. <laughs> I said, this show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Earl Nightingale. It had come all around. The cycle is complete in the most perfect way imaginable. Wow, that, that's really something else. And obviously you had him on the show. He came on the show. It was the greatest show I think we've ever done. He was alive. He was so with it. He said, I hear that you listen to like, yeah, Earl, you are my life. I've been listening to you and everything <laughs> you've ever published. Unfortunately, I lost my control. I was slobbering over the guy. But I just really wanted him to know how this show would not exist if it weren't for you. I just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I became what I thought about, Earl. Thank you. Um, that's another person that's really impacted your life. Yeah. I want to transition to some other adventures that you got into with the movies and plays. Can you yeah. tell us how that transition happened? Yeah. You know, I have this theory that everything becomes everything else. If I didn't teach the course, I wouldn't have had any of these things. Because when you think about it, teaching that course led me to the radio show. The radio show led me to want to buy a radio station. The radio station led me to some incredible people, one of which was Iris Dart. So what happened is Iris was coming out with uh, what well, was going to be a movie, but first it was going to be a Broadway play. It was called The People in the Picture. She was looking for producers. Although I've never produced uh, a Broadway play, I had produced many plays when I had the radio station and I produced plays in Atlantic City. So I had my fingers in the industry, but I never produced a Broadway show. As it turns out, she gave the rights to another person to produce it. And she said, go see her. And I did. That was Tracy Aaron. And Tracy and I got together. We hit it off beautifully and we co-produced the Broadway show. Donna Murphy, who uh, was a two-time Grammy winner, actually won a nomination for her performance in that as well. So yeah, so we have uh, one Broadway musical in the credit column. And then I did a movie called Clear Blue Tuesday that I executive produced. I had hired Elizabeth Lucas to direct one of the shows that I did in Atlantic City. Uh, she came up with the idea and called me and asked if I would executive produce that. And I said yes, and we put this movie together. We hired uh, Broadway singers, dancers, and actors, and songwriters. And we asked them each to write a song, give you the general concept of the movie that we have in mind. And if you write a song, that song will be in this movie. And it will be a union-run movie. It's, it's a real movie. The thing was a, a heck of a success. It won all kinds of awards, nationally and internationally. What we wanted to do is put a movie together about 9-11 that gave a very positive impression. And we took it past the disaster and to how it touched human lives. It's something that we're looking to do other things with now. So there's discussions going on about a potential play coming out of it, musical coming out of it. It's a beautifully, beautifully done play. 16 original songs. 
And I got to tell you, that's something I'm exceedingly proud of. And that's called Clear Blue Tuesday. If you remember 9-11, it was a Clear Blue Tuesday. I thought it was the perfect title. I remember that day well. And it's so nice that there's a movie that tells of something positive that could come out of something so tragic. In more recent years, you have entered the Jersey Shore scene, the Surf Light Theater. Can you tell us about that adventure? It happened actually three years ago. We're in our fourth year coming up. It's the Surf Light Theater. Surf Light Theater is uh, actually 72 years old. It is a performance art theater. One of the original summer stock theaters were open from the spring till Christmas. We've got all kinds of Broadway musicals and, and we've got comedy shows and all kinds of different entertainment that we bring in from all over the country. It's an interesting community. It's uh, Long Beach Island in New Jersey. And the reason Surf Lake Theater works is because in the summer, people who have second homes all flock to Long Beach Island. There's only something like 9,000 people who actually live on Long Beach Island. But in the summer, from let's say July 1 or July 4th weekend, right up to Labor Day, there's, there's about 125 to 150,000 people walking all over LBI and needing something to do. We sell out pretty rapidly in all of our shows. It's a 450-seat theater. I guess there's only so much miniature golf you can play down at the shore in the summer. <laughs> and that's what most people do, right? But it's funny because over the years, Surflight has been the anchor. I didn't own it when it was closed, but it, you know, closed for three years. Uh, when it closed, the restaurants were suffering, the golfing was suffering, and when there were no shows, there were no people playing golf or less people playing golf. So we're glad we got it back open. It's performing very well. Of course, currently the, the problem with the virus, and that cut us back a little bit last year, we actually had to put a tent up so that people would come out and sit under a tent on a place across the street from the actual theater. We weren't allowed to put people in the theater, but hoping that this summer things are going to be a lot different and there's all kinds of great entertainment coming up. So we're all kinds of ready for it. And you took your experience in producing movies and your experience with marketing, just your interest in entertainment, broadcasting, your networking skills, and you pulled it all together and you've got the surf light. I wish you the very best with that because Man, what a great opportunity to have a place like that here, right in New Jersey, not that far away from when you're in New Jersey, there's nothing really too far away from anything else. So right. to have that available, and I've never been there. So I would certainly enjoy paying a visit there. Take a look at surflight.org and you'll see what we've got coming up this summer. You and Kelly are my guests for a show. We'd love to have you. Thank you very much. I want to wrap up this interview by asking you, how's life for you now, Al? Life could not be better. I seem to develop ideas every day. I get to put them into action on occasion. I'm a happy man. I'm a real happy man. It's sort of tough to have, to have a boring day in the process of writing my next book. Also, I'm a big collector of books. I have a library filled with just about every kind of book imaginable. It's keeping me busy. And I bet that you're using this time to continue thinking. 
oh, are you kidding? It happens automatically. Ideas just formulate. Things need to be done. You want to leave this earth uh, knowing you've accomplished some stuff. You're enjoying your family at this time, too. Absolutely. We're lucky. Our grandkids are only 20 minutes away, so we get to see them all the time. So we're one big happy family. It's all cool. It's all very cool. Al, what do you want your legacy to be? Probably something like he was a nice guy, a little odd at times. Sometimes he takes a path that is a little different from what would be average. A guy who gives back and only takes when he deserves to. Well, I can tell you this. I am totally intrigued by the story that you have told starting with the stickball games in Hoboken and the mailroom job to the pioneer of satellite TV and the radio producing movies and thinking about ways to really make things better and make things more interesting. And on top of all that, a 48-year happy marriage and a family that lives close by. I guess it goes without saying, Al, that you had your share of knocks and bruises through this whole process, I'm sure. You don't get to do all those things without getting a few slaps. But man, you're an inspiration to me and I'm sure to a lot of our listeners who maybe are afraid to step out and do things and start bouncing off some of those walls. You got to bounce off walls. I feel sometimes very sorry for people who leave jobs too early because they're not satisfied. When you leave the walls that are there, you can't bounce off them later. So I've spent my career bouncing off walls and it works. It's another good opportunity in life to check out. Bounce off walls. I totally agree with it. You have learned so much from your mentors and from people who've impacted your life, you remember their names, you remember when it happened, you remember what they said, you remember profound quotes. Can't tell you how happy I am we've, we've done this and to get to know you, Al. Well, thank you, James. I feel the same way. You're, you're, a, you're a brother. You know, what you're doing is wonderful. It's wonderful because I know there's no big dollars in it for you. You're doing it from your heart and, and you're finding wonderful people. I'm enjoying every interview I've heard so far, and I'll continue to listen. And remember, the most important thing I can tell any listener to this program is you will become what you think about. Bingo. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.